You want to hear the cockamamie statement of the year? Listen to this. Intellectual Digest was born of the thoughtful person's need to keep up with the ever-expanding output of today's idea explosion. <laughs> that's, that's one of the uh, magic words of our time, the term explosion, like uh, idea explosion, youth explosion, people explosion, think explosion, crud explosion. Dum, 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 dum. How about that, the intellectual digest? I suppose that's the other side of the slob digest. Somehow it seems to me that the concept of the digest in it's the intellectual. But of course, but of course, I'm as a sorehead. Dum, da, dum, dum. Uh, oh, uh, before we, uh... No, no, I might as well get right into it here. I, uh, I'd like to salute Elizabeth Taylor. I've saluted Elizabeth Taylor for a long time. Last picture I have in my mind of Elizabeth Taylor is, uh, this magnificent actress, this tremendous artist of our day, this uh, sensitive delineator of the hopes and fears of 20th century man, climbing up on a ladder in the old Madison Square Garden that was propped up against the side of a two-story high purple cake with pink ice cream on the top. And she was wearing a dress four sizes too small and a girdle that you could hear thrumming for blocks. And uh, she was taking large chunks of this purple cake and throwing them at the crowd below. And I was immediately thinking, of course, I I don't like to bring into it this problem of the historical perspective. Let's them eat cake. Let's them eat cake. Oh, together we go. By the way, have you uh, had any uh, ideas lately uh, as part of the idea explosion? What a great phrase that is. Holy smokes. I think I may have that done in uh, cross-stitch. Have it put on a pillow or something, you know, stuff it with goose down. The idea explosion. <laughs> Let's put it this way. What is more close to what's actually happening is the bombast explosion. And that uh, we would like to salute Elizabeth uh, that little bauble. Well, how much did that trinket cost that she bought? A million some odd bucks? Yeah, something over a million dollars. A big rock there. And uh, I just think that's a real statement. But that's nothing. Uh, I mean, after all, it is a diamond. We have a little note just came in from Reuters, in case you're interested in the uh, in the decadent world. Here is uh, the latest news from the world of decadence. Uh, Christie's, the London auctioneers, today set a world record when they sold a rare porcelain Cop de Monte group of mice catchers for 140,000 francs or $32,558. Oh, wait a minute now. Don't, don't look that way. Mice catchers. Ever seen a mice catcher? You don't know what is it, a mice catcher, don't you? Please, let's set the mood, if you will. A little mood music, please. Uh, that's a good enough mood. <laughs> Thank you, Herbert. But, uh, I was thinking of that. I read that, see? And I'm sitting there in the, in the barber chair. You see, a lot of times today, I just go to the barber chair to sit. Say, I'm sitting in the barber chair, and then this guy's 
hissing in my ear. And I have this, uh, this uh, very uh, faith barber who works downstairs here at the station. You know, a, a big change in the men's world came when they stopped having barber shops and they began to have hair styling salons. And the guy stopped being named Tony and became known as Pietro, and, uh, Mr. Tony, and so on. And, and uh, there's this guy who, uh, you know, he used to be pretty straight. Now he uh, he walks around my chair and wears these little golden slippers and, and he uh, wears these pink shirts and he hisses things in my ear. And if there's anything I can't stand, it's people hissing in my ear. And uh, he hisses things like, How would you like the sideburn? And I said, Come on, cut the hair, will you, Tony? I remember when you were straight. When you hadn't even been down on Greenwich Avenue, come on, cut it out. And uh, I, I enjoy going down there. Sometimes you, you can get at certain hours of the day, you can see thousands and thousands of tall, willowy young men leading their Afghans down the street. It's a, it's part of the city scene. It's very exciting. Would you like to salute that there a little bit, there, please? And in between them are these tall, thin, leather-clad Cosmo girls, leading their Afghans. It's all part of the idea explosion. And, uh, oh, yes, you can hear the ideas exploding out there in the dark. You think I'm kidding? This is from the New York Times. Uh, New York Times book review section of the past uh, the past week. And uh, it's an opening, so it's uh, the intellectual digest. was one of the thoughtful persons need to keep up with the ever-expanding output of today's idea explosion. Well, it's getting to the point now where we're all... We're like doctors, you know. A doctor has to keep up with the literature. And uh, you're just no good unless you keep up with the latest diatribe of Susan Sontag. And uh, where would you be if you didn't read the latest Nat Hentoff blast carved out of sheer silly putty in the voice? Where would you be if you didn't... But that goes on and on. And so I'm, I'm, and I'm here tonight, friends, to be a sort of fulcrum to all that. It's my function as an artist. I'm a fulcrum. And uh, when I heard about the uh, the mice catchers. Why, well, I don't... Well, wait a minute now. Don't don't look at me and say, what is a mice catcher? That isn't a question. They cost $32,558. That's enough. What is a diamond? Except it's a rock. Ask yourself, what is a diamond? It's a rock. That's all. It's a symbol. And the mere fact you pay $38,000 for a set of mice catchers is in itself more important than if you pay $38,000 for a Ferrari. Just because a Ferrari goes, it has a function. And that's the point of porcelain mice catchers. No function whatsoever. In fact, they're traumatically ugly. And I remember, you know, speaking of mice catchers, now, now, of course, word association and idea relationships have to do with uh, the inner core of the mind, where the bad stuff lays. And some of the good stuff. And it's struggling to get out. Like they say, inside of every inside of every fat man is a skinny man trying to get out. And inside of every skinny man is a fat man hoping to be born. And uh, it's like a Chinese box puzzle. And inside of every radio show, they're like little raisins in a great pot of rice pudding fermenting on the stove. Hide the little commercials. A lot of ding, ding, ding. Now, I'm going to tell you a very sickening story, and I hope none of you misunderstand it. <laughs> In fact, I'm sure that all of you will. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, because you see, most of you are city types, and uh, you've lived the... Well, now, when I say city type, I, I mean uh, 
your people who are white-collar types. Has it occurred to you that there's a white-collar civilian who uh, who really doesn't, uh, has never really contacted the, the grit and the grime of life? Well, uh, when I was a kid, now, I'm just, uh, I really wasn't a kid, actually. I was, uh, I was in my formative teens, and, uh, you know, we believe all the time that uh, the people about 15, 16, 17 are very sensitive. You know, they're, oh, boy, they, they relate to everything. Well, they are, really, in a way. And they're open to any, if, uh, if they allow themselves to be. In fact, I think people all their lives are open to any kind of an experience if they open up. But uh, I lived in a town when I was a kid. Now, this is related to the mice catcher. When I read this thing, I'm sitting in the barber chair, and I read this piece about mice catchers selling for $32,000. And I looked around, there was Tony, the, a faith men's hair coiffure artist tiptoeing around, and uh, his friend, uh, Mr. Leonard, at the next chair, they were tiptoeing. Once in a while, I like to see them. They dance a gavotte occasionally, where they touch hands and blow kisses at the ceiling. And it's kind of, well, it is. It's kind of pretty. I like, I like, uh, I like uh, grace and style in life, and, uh, and it's kind of fun. And, and especially when I noticed that the guy sitting in the next chair, you see, was a guy who looked like he was right out of a Class B gangster movie of 1932, you know, like Big Charlie the Toad. And uh, he said, <laughs> and this, this a faith hairdresser was walking around trying to dress his four hairs. And the Big Tony just sat there and uh, looked at the racing form. He didn't know what was going on. But uh, I read this little note about the mice catchers. I think of mice catchers. Mice catchers. And while he is buzzing with his little razor around my ears, I, uh, I could see myself again. Uh, how many of you have ever worked in big industry? You know, I think this is one of the great unrecorded parts of American life. And yet millions of people are involved in it. Very few movies are ever set in really big industry. How many times recently have you seen a scene laid, let's say, uh, in the uh, sub-assembly line in the transmission plant at uh, River Rouge in Detroit? Damn few. And yet millions of people are in this. I don't know whether Susan Sontag has ever been anywhere near a steel mill. Doesn't matter. The, the, the great mass of the people who work in these uh, great industries out there are almost completely unrecorded. You rarely uh, see, you, you read things about labor conditions, you read things about inflation, and you'll hear about unions, but you won't hear about the guys walking around, how it feels. This is a fantastic operation here, friends. This is a major industry here. Why, uh, we've got floor upon floor. And uh, just above me is the sacred studio where John Gambling works. And uh, just below me is the... Oh, but this is, uh, as I say, this is sub-assembly lines. We have, the, we have an idea explosion here that just doesn't stop. And some nights I sit here quietly in the studio and I can hear old memos as they're fermenting and rustling like, like ancient dying ghosts of old... Oh, yes, do you know that, that our, our business is so complex here at WOR that the other day I got a memo came in and was on blue paper I looked at it and it looked a little familiar the name that was signed to it and then it hit me it was an executive 
who's been out of WOR for eight years. His memo finally got to me. That's how complex our business is. It has to go through channels. And our channels extend all the way. Oh, this just goes around like a tremendous chain. In and out it goes. A vast interlooping, uh, uh, like an octopus sitting here. And I'm way out on one of the end of one of the lesser-known tentacles, sitting way down here by the suction cup. And once in a while, I can see it glint in the octopus's eye. And then occasionally, I feel a little tremor come along this uh, this uh, tentacle, and I and I could feel the, the the trembling of this mighty this mastodon of electronic communicative industry. And you know, I don't know whether I should sell sleeping tablets though. I mean, I, I, if, if you guys all take your, the advice of these people and went out and bought them, forget it. Where would my audience go? <laughs> you know? <laughs> We're a self-destructive man, I'll tell you, all the way down the line. And, uh, you know, I, I'll, you can't ever grow out of what you, you started out as. You can't really. And a lot of times when I'm walking around here in New York and I go into offices and I hear people griping about their work. Uh, you'll go into a, a recording studio, for example, and the, and the hardest work that the guy has done in like 10 years has been to thread an Ampex tape machine. And you hear him gripe, oh, what a thing. Oh, my back is killing me. Oh, <laughs> this is really a backbuster of a day. Oh, man. And then you go up to the 23rd floor, and there's a salesman who's, you know, he's complaining. He'll say, oh, boy, what a day. Do you realize that, that uh, I had to cut my lunch short today? I had to cut it down to two and a half hours today. I mean, man, I just can't, don't know where to turn around. I've had, I've had seven phone calls in the last hour. But whenever I hear this thing, I'm reminded. I keep reminding myself. I keep saying, Shepherd? And then I look around and say, yeah. And I find myself griping too, see. I say, Shepherd? I say, yeah. Shepherd? Do you remember the 40-inch soaking pits? Ah, instantly I'm hit. Do I remember the 40-inch soaking pits? Now listen, if you want to get to sleep tonight, friend, you better turn off this show. Because I'm going to tell you a terrible story. An exciting story. Have you ever talked to a railroad man? You know, being a railroad man is a special mistake. Railroad men are like uh, secret lodge brothers. And being a railroad man has a whole world and a whole set of mores and a whole set of things and conditions. It's like being in the Army. You know, once you've been in the Army and you meet a guy who's ever been in the Army, you have a secret thing. You just say, you know how it was. And they'll say, yeah, boy. And all the others, no matter how much they read about it, they can't quite understand it. Well, you're listening to an ex-steel worker. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. You, you've heard about steel mills, of course, most of you. And very few of you actually know what a steel mill is like, what it is. What do you think it's like? How do you see it? Do you see it as those movies with the big, with the big, uh, usually uh, Bessemer converter they show? They'll show that. Or they'll, they'll show one of the big hot metal ladles. That's about it. That's what people think a steel mill is. Well, that's like thinking New York is the Empire State Building. Or maybe Grand Central. Oh, no. All of us who live in New York, we know what it is. It's a lot of things, man. It's 2 o'clock in the morning in Katz's. It's beer cans on 6th Avenue. 
It's the wail of the wounded and the cry of the siren on 57th Street as the injured are being carried away from the latest scene of disaster. It's Mayor Lindsay doing his shtick. It's Mario Procaccino doing his shtick. It's all of us. It's the whole big ball of wax. It's not one thing. It's 28 million things. It's all of it. Well, the steel mill was like some giant mountain range. When I was a kid, I lived in a steel mill town. And the steel mill surrounded the town. You could see it on the horizon. And you know, on a night like this, in the, in the fall, especially, when the air was clear, and if you care to go out, you'll find an ex it's an exceedingly clear night tonight. You could see the whole sky, especially up in the north. The sky would be lit with a glow, a kind of purple-red-orange glow of the steel mill. And you see the underbody of the clouds would just flicker all the time, all the time. So it was never really dark there. It was, it was like there was a northern lights constant. And by the way, speaking of northern lights, at this time of the year in the Midwest, in the northern Midwest, above the glow of the steel mill, above that dark orange glow, you can see the occasional flicker of the real northern lights. Have you ever seen northern lights? They move like a kind of a ghost-like white, strange, bluish purple. At first, you don't think you're seeing it. You just think, just moves. And two, three o'clock in the morning, particularly, you can see the northern lights. And this time of year, anywhere from August through probably the middle of November, is shooting star time. And so with the glow of the steel mill, that dark orange-purple glow, and above it, the flicker of the northern lights, and then occasionally, there would be a moving shooting star. And then the eternal airplanes moving over this constantly moving over the sky on their way into O'Hare Airport. And the trains roaring past in the night, uh, carrying coke, carrying pig iron, and carrying pigs in and out of Chicago, of all types, constantly. Well, that was the way it was, you see. There was just no other way. You didn't think in terms of uh, waving fields of grain. Uh, you never thought in terms of the moon over the Wabash. This was Indiana, but not the Indiana they sing songs about. A big old steel mill. And, and nobody uh, who had ever been inside the steel mill was ever the same once he'd been inside of it. You'd never think uh, about Europe uh, the same once you've been there. You can never think about, in fact, almost anything you do once you've actually done it the way you used to think of it before you did it. <laughs> Everything changes. Well, that steel mill was hanging in. One day, as a kid, I got this call. I had applied at the mill for a job. Like every other kid. It's the best thing to do. And you applied. And then, one day, I came home from school, and there was a note that says, call this number. My mother says, somebody called. And I think it was the steel mill. I said, the steel mill? That was fantastic luck. So I gave him a call, and the next day I was down taking an examination. Do you remember the first examinations you ever took for jobs? These long, involved, uh, <laughs> aptitude-type things. I took about 50 of them. And weeks went by. And then one historic afternoon, I was given my clock pin. 
Now, what is a clock pin? Well, it's a pin you put on you that says from here on in you've got a clock number, and you sign in. And I was officially hired as a laborer in the steel mill. I had proven that I could carry stuff, and I had a fantastic aptitude for scut. And the, that the, <laughs> that the, I showed great talent for moving large chunks of metal from one place to the other. And my lungs were made of pure leather, so I could breathe in the Stygian atmosphere. Well, from that minute on, I got on a bus that day, and I went out to the 40-inch soaking pits. May I describe to you this? Are you interested in this, what the soaking pit is like? Well, a steel mill, to begin with, is not a single mill. A steel mill is like the eye of a fly. You know what a fly's eye looks like? It is composed of thousands of individual units, cells. Well, a city is composed of thousands of neighbors, many of them totally different from the one that's two blocks away, and often opposing, competing. Well, a steel mill covers a, an area, at least the steel mill I worked in, which was inland steel, covered an area probably the size of Trenton, or better than that, maybe. And it, it arched along the shore of Lake Michigan, and the way they the way they continued to uh, get more ground to build a steel mill was by filling in the lake. And uh, you know that are you aware that all the steel mills, uh, Gary and, and uh, Carnegie, Illinois, are slowly moving towards Canada? <laughs> They're filling up Lake Michigan. So th there were long fingers sticking out in the lakes where they had the they'd have the, the tin mill sticking way out a mile out in the lake on a man-made peninsula. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, when I was working with the labor gang on my second night, I saw stuff I never had seen from outside the mill. At 2 o'clock in the morning, you see these, these long lines like, uh, like spidery glowing centipedes moving out into the lake on rails. These strange little molten slag cars all moving out like, uh, like pictures in a Japanese painting moving out to, out to the dark sea. And then they would almost disappear, and you'd see them stop way out in the lake, that dark lake where the wind was howling in and the waves were getting higher. And then they would dump. they just dump these, these loads of molten slag. It was actually lava. would just pour out, and you'd hear the hiss and see the steam rise. And they're building the lake. They're building that lakefront out further and further and further. It was always cold in the mill, fantastically cold, either cold or unbelievably hot. And so my first week in the mill, I'm assigned to a labor gang of a 40-inch soaking pit. Well, a 40-inch soaking pit is my idea of what hell must be like. It is Dante's idea of hell. It's black and, and uh, dusty, and it's a long, high metal shed that uh, is so high you can't really see the ceiling. And moving up and through that darkness are these moving cranes high up above. And by the way, one of the scariest sounds in the mill, and one of the most dangerous sounds, it's like the sound of an approaching shell if you're a front-line combat soldier. One of the most dangerous sounds is the sound of a moving overhead crane. More guys are killed by overhead cranes than any other single thing in heavy industry. And these great cranes move along at a tremendous speed. And you just hear the sound of the... They had a whistle that would go whoop, 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 whoop. Everybody ducked and looked. And you'd see this crane moving along. And attached to the bottom of the crane, 
usually would be this great metal clamp and a huge hook and tremendous thick uh, glowing cables and swinging from side to side would be a red-hot pig iron ingot. Tremendous thing, moving side, maybe five, eight, nine, ten tons, just moving through like a fantastic pendulum through the darkness. Everybody is hanging on the walls waiting this thing go by. And when it would go by, it would move past you. This thing was so hot that you would feel the searing heat from this ingot. It may be a old pyro. Maybe you'd be a hundred yards away from it. And the temperature may be down 15, 20 below where you are. It would get that cold. But you would feel this blast of searing hot air, dry hot air, and you'd feel the hair on your face when this thing went by. Oh, that's white hot. And then they would they would lower it down into the pit, you see. Boy, what a name. It's a, such a descriptive name, the pit, the black pit. The pit was a big hole in the ground, and they would lower this white hot ingot tremendous ingot. Maybe it was so 10, 15 feet long and about 4 or 5 feet square. Solid, white-hot metal. And they would lower it down into this pit that's maybe 15 feet deep. And it would clank when it hit the bottom. Boom! And they would release it. And you'd see steam and slag rise. And it would be lying at the bottom of this pit with maybe 8 or 9 other white-hot ingots. Tremendous ingots. And the idea was that they would lie down in this pit there and they would slowly dry off, slowly cool. Because if this metal cooled too fast, there would be millions of tiny cracks and it would change the whole composition of it and the whole strength of it. And so this was sort of like a, a deep freeze, a kind of like a deep thermos bottle. And it would just lie down. You'd see this great, tremendous sheet of heat coming out of this dark pit. Next to it would be another pit where there's another bunch of bigots in a different stage of cooling until all along. There may be 15, 20 of these pits all along there and going all the way up to ones that were already emptied of ingots. My job with about 10 other guys was to be lowered into these pits wearing wooden shoes and an asbestos suit. And we had a, a, a kind of scraper and we would scrape the slag off the bottom of a red-hot pit and as they would lower you down, like a deep-sea diver, you'd step off this this rack, kind of a lowering uh, elevator. They would lower you down into this fantastic heat, this tremendous dark, swirling heat with nothing but rising steam and dust and smoke. They'd lower you down into this pit, and you'd step off onto the floor of the pit. And by the way, the pit was always its heat electrically from inside so that it keeps the ingots from cooling too fast. And you'd step off onto this concrete this concrete heated floor, and immediately the wooden shoes would start burning. And you'd start chipping away with the with the slag. <laughs> you'd chip the slag. Your job was to chip the slag off the bottom of the thing. You're chipping away, chipping away in the black. You saw nothing but that dark slag. You're chipping, chipping. And you could see your shoes burning and the smoke rising from your shoes. You could, And you, you had a, an oxygen inhaler, and you're, you're breathing in this hot oxygen. And then they'd ring a bell. You were allowed... Three minutes in the pit, you'd step back onto the elevator and they'd pull you back up like a deep-sea diver. There would be a guy on the top that would take your helmet off, which was a round oxygen inhalant helmet. They'd take your helmet off, and the next guy would go down, and you'd be allowed to sit there for five minutes. You had five minutes up and three minutes down all day long. Well, one day, 
Sounds like a great job, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you can see why I never gripe around here. <laughs> well, one day, one day, a uh, guy called me into the office. I was about to go down. I'm, I'm a cool 17, see, and I'm, 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 I'm a grizzled, hardened worker in the 40-inch soaking pits. And the, the foreman called me and said, listen, he said, I'm going to send you down. I'm going to send you down to the shipping end. And he said, don't, don't suit up today. Uh, I want you to wear safety shoes. I want you to wear a hard hat and uh, better compare the blue safety goggles. But uh, don't suit up, and I want you to wear asbestos gloves. Go down to the shipping end. I said, okay. I take my lunch bucket, and all the other guys are getting their asbestos suits on and their, their uh, oxygen inhalants, and I go clunking off down towards the shipping end. Well, that was a good two miles away. And I'm walking along through the great racks of roaring relays. They had tremendous relays that are exploding and booming. Because all of this mill, you see, is electrically operated by some monster, some King Kong somewhere. <laughs> and uh, every five minutes, you'd see this whole bank of relays go boom, boom, boom. And the sparks would fly out. And, and more ingots would come moving down to the overhead cranes through the darkness. And I'm moving out into the lake. You see this 40-inch soaking pit mill stuck out into the lake on a long peninsula that had been built out of lava. And because it was out, way out in the lake, you could smell the fish. It's a strange combination of total machinery and complete nature. You'd smell fish, and you'd smell the water, and you'd smell the north woods. You'd also smell diesel oil. You'd smell the electrically charged ions that were floating around from the exploding relays. You could smell the heat from overheated copper, and you could smell the smell of heating asbestos. And you'd see once in a while the exploding tremendous flash in the air when somewhere off in the distance somebody had tapped another heat. And by the way, that's a whole subject of another show, working in the open hearts when they're tapping heats, which is what you mostly generally think of when you think of, an op of a steel mill. Uh, movie or something. That's called tapping a heat, by the way. And is one of the most tense moments in all the steel world when they tap that heat. And I'm, I'm walking way out into the ocean. You know why I'm telling this story tonight? It's funny. That This whole train of thought was set off by reading that little item of the mice catchers. The whole train of thought. And I'll tell you what the connection is. I am walking through the steel day. I remember the scene so well because it was the first time that I was ever reading on my own in the mill. No longer am I connected with this labor gang. Have you ever been in a labor gang? And you know, if you ever if you've ever worked in a labor gang in a uh, in a mill like that, uh, this is a, a machine, uh, a team, actually a team, and they work on tonnage. And and if you are a weak link in that team, oh man, these guys at the uh, I I'm now on my own. I've been sent down to the to the far end of the shipping end of the 40-inch soaking mill. Well, I'm walking through this long, long mill. Now, I'd been through the mill, this particular mill, before, but I'm the first time now I'm going down to do a job. I'm walking through this mill, and they had, in the middle of the mill, right in the middle of the 40-inch soaking pit building, they had a steel mill commissary. Now, this is a scene I'm sure none of you have ever seen. Steel workers... At three, this is all night work, by the way. It's now three o'clock in the morning, and they're in this little room that's made out of like battleship gray metal. And 
Here these guys are all sitting close together, maybe 150 of them, all jammed in this little tiny overheated room, eating bowls of ice cream out of big soup bowls. They had <laughs> tremendous soup bowls, and they would serve them ice cream, strawberry ice cream that was put in soup bowls and black coffee. And they're covered with dirt and crud. These guys have got grease. Half of them, you can, you can hardly see their eyes because they're looking out of, out of this thick coating of dust and grime and crud. And they're sitting there shoveling in this, this strawberry ice cream and wearing their safety goggles, the blue goggles up on the top of their head. And all around them, and this is the first thing that hits you about a steel bell. Once you've heard it, you will never forget it. All around you, you can just feel the ground moving up and down. There's this tremendous vibration of moving cranes and this, this, this almost a subterranean earthquake of the sound of the rolling mill, which is right next to you, turning out the 100-inch plate mill. And these people, they, they live out their lives hardly able to talk to each other, except by sign language. Just tremendous movement of the ground up and down. The, the, the sound is so all-inclusive, and the smell is so all-inclusive, that the entire world of the steel mill is a self-contained world, almost like a great, a, a great globe of bubblegum, just sort of containing everybody within it. Sound, smell, and work, and sweat, and dirt, and safety goggles. Danger, all the time danger. Always the little feeling way down deep in the pit of your brain. Then any minute now, something's going to run over you. Something's going to pour. When something's going to explode, or something's going to blow a fuse, or one of the wires is going to break, or one of the cables is going to fret. And always that fantastic sound of enormous machinery is boom, boom, boom. Wow. Well, I'm walking on down now. I had my ice cream. And now I'm in the office. And now... Whenever I think of the word office, you know, there's a, there's a warm quality to the word office. An office is kind of a home. And uh, the offices that you have in New York, though, are very temporary homes. People move in and out of these offices in New York. And they're kind of, uh, yeah, there's a, a pastel quality to them, the pale colors. And the tall, thin girls that come from out of town to work the pink phones. And the salesmen that get transferred in and out. But uh, I'm going to tell you about a different kind of office, a real industrial office, a working office in a steel mill. And it was my first night working in that office. I walked down to the far end, and here is this steel door on the wall of the building. I open it up, and I'm now in the office where I'm going to spend the next week working with these men. And all five of them look up at me. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. They're wearing corduroy hats, hunting caps, red, green, brown. They've got these grimy desks, and you could smell this coffee. The coffee pot that had been on since probably they first began to make steel in America. This coffee pot had been started roughly five years after the first pilgrims landed, and it was never stopped. Three shifts a day, six guys would come into this office on each shift. Six guys would leave, the same six all the time. Each one was well over a 100 years old, these men. 
And you could smell this coffee. It was just everything permeated. It was permeated, the, the, the air with coffee and the smell of old salami sandwiches and old files full of ancient slipping, shipping slips and the smell of ink and corduroy jackets. And these three guys were just sitting there at the desks. The other three were out checking, which is something they always do in these offices. And you could see the freight cars moving by. And then I noticed something. They weren't saying a word. And the minute I opened the door, one of them went, shh, 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 shh. I said, what? He said, are you the... I said, yeah. And you could hear the bill booming all around. He said, shh, 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 shh. There, I noticed, sitting next to one of the desks, was a pail full of water. And these three men were watching this pail with fantastic intensity, looking at the pail. And on the edge of the desk was a ruler, a one-foot ruler. It was balanced, half off the desk and half on the desk. And the end of the ruler, hanging out in space, was a piece of cheese. And the three of them were watching the ruler. And under the piece of cheese, directly under it, on the floor, was the pail of water. I said, what are you guys doing? And one of them said, we're catching mice. I said, you're catching mice? Yeah. Shh. He'll be out any minute now. And all that night, we stood in the darkness and watched mice creep up out of the file cabinets, sneak along the ruler, and make a fatal grab for that piece of cheese. And then suddenly the ruler would tilt, up, in he goes the water. It was a good night. They got seven that night. All the while, the mill is roaring around us. And right at this very moment, tonight, there are three men checking and three men sitting in the office at the 40-inch soaking pit shipping end and probably catching mice out there in the darkness.